Welcome to the Presentation Boss Podcast. We're your hosts. I'm Kate Norris. And I'm Thomas Craft. Whether you're pitching your business, speaking at a work meeting, or on the stage, we're here to help you present with clarity and confidence. Matthew Dix is an elementary school teacher and the internationally best-selling author of several books, including his latest, 21 Truths About Love, Memoirs of an Imaginary Friend, Something Missing, and Storyworthy, Engage, Teach, Persuade, and Change Your Life Through the Power of Storytelling. He's the founder and artistic director of Speak Up, a Hartford-based storytelling organization that produces shows and teaches storytelling to corporations, nonprofits, universities, and individuals. He's a record 45-time Moth Story Slam winner and six-time Grand Slam champion. Matt is also a podcaster, wedding DJ, minister, and stand-up comic. He loves eating ice cream cake, playing golf poorly, tickling his children, staring at his wife, and not sleeping. So welcome, Matt, to the Presentation Boss podcast. Thank you very much. It's an honor to be here. G'day, Matt. Hello. So, Matt, we are so excited to have you join us. We are long-time listeners of your podcast. Your book is our absolute Bible for the storytelling shows that we put on that are – there we go. There's Thomas holding up the book. Um, and the storytelling shows that we put on are basically 99% inspired by your um, show's Speak Up. So you've been a huge kind of part of our speaking inspiration. I'm so glad. Thank you. So tell us, what is between the lines of your bio? Tell us a little bit about yourself and your storytelling journey. Oh, well, my storytelling journey is sort of accidental in a lot of ways. You know, I've been writing for a long time. I've written every day of my life since I was 17 years old. And some of that writing was stories and some of it was personal narrative and some of it was opinion. And some of it, most of it actually was rubbish. It was terrible. <laughs> but eventually I started publishing novels, which are stories. You know, they're not personal stories. They're fiction. And, you know, I thought I would probably do that for the rest of my life and teach. And then The Moth came around, the, the podcast that The Moth produced, the large international storytelling organization that's made its way to Australia, actually. Uh, they started putting out a podcast back in 2009 where they were podcasting a couple of their stories every week. And my friends immediately pointed me to the podcast and told me how much I would love it. And they were right. I did. I really, I loved that personal storytelling. And then, you know, they said, you should go and tell, tell stories at the moth. Cause you've had the worst life of everyone, anyone we've ever known. And you know, that's not a nice thing to say, <laughs> but it, um, you know, it wasn't entirely untrue. I just had a life filled with sort of unusual, unfortunate circumstances. And that's what I thought. I thought I'd go to the moth and maybe tell one of those stories. And truly, I planned on telling one story and then never doing it again. Yeah, right. So um, it was really it was really a stumbling into New York, you know, against my will to a great degree. You know, I had sort of said I would do it and then didn't do it for a long time. And my friends wouldn't let up. And so finally, I told my wife, Alicia, let's go to the moth. I'll do this stupid thing once and then everyone will leave me alone and I can go back to living my regular life. And uh, we went to New York and I dropped my name in the hat for a moth story slam. You know, you don't guarantee a spot on the stage. It's, you know, it's 20 names in the hat and they pull out 10 on any given night. So I thought I have a 50-50 chance of avoiding this disaster. <laughs> yep. And, um, we got through all, nine names without my name being called. I was the 10th name called that night. and. You know, I'll never forget when they called my name, I didn't move because I knew 
that no one in the room knew who I was. So if I just sat very still and very quietly, they would eventually call another name and give up on me. And it was only because Alicia was there. She kicked me under the table and she demanded that I get on the stage and tell my story. And I was so angry the whole time. I just was so <laughs> upset that I had to do this thing that I didn't want to do. And uh, then I ended up on stage. And the moment I started speaking into the microphone, I fell in love with what was happening. I just, it was a place I felt really at home right away. You know, and I used to tell people that I fell into something that I was naturally good at a little later in life. And then one day, Alicia heard me say that to someone. And she said, have you been really telling people that? And I said, yeah, I think that's true. And she said, you're an idiot. Uh, <laughs> so what she pointed out to me, which I have now come to understand, is that unknowingly, I was sort of preparing myself for storytelling for a long time. I was writing stories. And I didn't understand that when you write stories from the age of 17 to, you know, whenever, 40, when I first took that stage, you sort of start to understand how stories work. You know, I analyze movies all the time because I'm interested in stories. So when it comes time to crafting a story, I understood how stories function and how they should operate. So that helped a lot. And I was also a wedding DJ for 20 years, which means every Saturday I stood in front of 200 drunken strangers and had to get them to do what I wanted them to do, speaking extemporaneously. So I had no fear standing in front of crowds. It was just a normal thing for me. And then I had been an elementary school teacher for 20 years. And so that's the worst audience in the world. 10-year-olds are terrible human beings. And all I do all day is tell them stories to try to keep their attention. So all three of those things sort of came together for me that night in New York when I told my first story. And I happened to win my first story slam. And I'm also the most competitive person I've ever met in my life. I just insist on winning. Oh, challenge. Yep. You know, um, uh, competitions that I don't even care about. Like, you know, <laughs> you and, it's like, Kate, you and I have been competing in something right now that you don't even know you're competing in. And I don't even need to tell you if I'm winning or not, as long as I win in the end. Like, it's just really terrible. I'm probably winning. Yeah, I'm a horrible person. <laughs> so the fact that I found a storytelling opportunity where there were winners and losers and scores like all of that appealed to me greatly. And and that sort of brought me to the stage. And now I find myself oddly telling stories all over the world. So so it was very accidental. It was not a pre-planned mission of mine. It was it was something I stumbled upon. But I kept an open mind and an open heart. And I did the thing that was hard, which is something I always do in life. I try to run to the thing that scares me the most. And that's what I was doing that night. I think it's certainly a weird concept on the surface to think about competitive storytelling from the stage. That's 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 a step up from even competitive just speaking that that uh, we've been involved with for a long time here and you know it's certainly a step up even from the shows that we're producing with life out loud now that's just stories from stages no scorecard whatsoever it's just an extra level of bizarre really <laughs> well you know the one thing i do tell people is a lot of people who say this is art and how can you judge a story but i always point out to them that the score allows us to determine who's good mm. Because if this was just a come and tell a story every night, I don't get to be the person who travels around the world telling stories and teaching storytelling. It's the scoring that allows me to get recognized as one of the best. Yeah. And because I'm getting recognized as one of the best, the opportunities come and the doors open. And so for me, the scoring is really important because otherwise it's just people gathering in a in a bar or a library or a bookstore telling stories. And people can leave thinking like, oh, I liked that guy's story the most. But unless we can sort of fix, you know, unless I can plant my flag and say I'm the best or I was the best or I am one of the best, 
I don't get to do the things I'm doing. So there, it is important, I think, for me to, to have that opportunity to be recognized as one of the best. And that's why I love that competitive element. Well, it separates you from the guy who just gets up there and tells us about the time he went to China. And that's the end of his story, doesn't it? <laughs> exactly. Yeah. It, you know, it's the same thing with my books. You know, I write novels and I'm in constant competition with every other novel in the bookstore. Yeah. And I'm keenly aware of it. I don't have a lot of influence on that competition. I write the book and that's the end of it sort of for me, other than when I promote my books and I talk about my books. But there is a competition that is happening right now in bookstores all over the world with my new book. And that competition yeah. will determine how much I get paid for my next book, whether I get to write a next book, all of those kinds of things. So people like to say that competition doesn't belong in the world of art, but I just think that's nonsense because it's the competition that allows us to determine who is good and who is bad. It certainly adds a quantifying element. I, I mean, I'm listening to this thinking it's probably no different to say figure skating at the Olympics. Like that's arguably an art form, but there's a panel of judges who give it a number. Yeah. Exactly the same thing, I'm sure. Right. Absolutely. So let's let's get stuck into storytelling. So why don't we start with, from from your perspective, Matt, what is a story? And then conversely, what is a story not? Well... What I always tell people is a story is about a moment in our life. If we're talking about narrative storytelling, nonfiction, it's about a moment in our life of either transformation or realization. Essentially, it's change over time. A story in its best form is going to be, I used to be one person, but now I am another, or I used to think something, but now I think a new thing. And Essentially, that's it. And that means a story could take place over the course of 10 seconds, or it could take place over the course of 10 minutes, or I mean, theoretically, I guess 10 hours, as long as you're demonstrating change over time. What it's not is a series of sentences that indicate what you did over the course of time, which is what most people think stories are. Most people tell stories to relay the stuff that happened to them in the chronological order that it happened to them in. And those are the people who we try to escape from at cocktail parties. You know, they're the people that you're standing and they're talking to you and you're hoping that someone comes and joins you so that you can escape and leave this poor soul with this person who can't tell a story and will never stop talking. So it really is just a moment in your life when you realize something fundamentally has shifted either in who you are as a person or the way that you think about yourself or the world or another person. And that's, that's really it. You know, it's also not a beginning, middle, and end, because I really hate that description. Because mm. like, I'm a drinking yeah. a Diet Coke right now. This Diet Coke had a beginning, and I'm getting close to the middle. And by the end of the podcast, I will probably be at the end. And yet, it is not a story. Like, you can't help but have a beginning, a middle, and an end when you begin talking. There's always a beginning, right? We always start by saying something. And somewhere in between the end and the beginning is defined as the middle, and then eventually I'm going to stop talking and you'll say, well, that was the end. I always feel that explaining that a story is a, has a beginning, middle and end is one of the most useless comments to make because it doesn't help anyone in any way whatsoever. It's just a moment of change that you have to reflect through the course of the story. And, you know, the length of the story will be determined based upon what you're saying, how complicated it is, how long it took for that change to happen, those kinds of things. But that's really all it is when you boil it right down. Mm. That's an interesting moment of unbelievably realization. I've just had, you know, 74 episodes of your podcast I've listened to now. Uh, and, and 
a story is that moment of transformation or realization and the process that led you to that. Right. Yes. Yeah. I always start with the end of a story because my stories always begin with the moment of change, you know? So it's, oh my gosh, something just happened. I shifted in some fundamental way. The story itself is how can I get my audience to understand that change with the most clarity and context possible? And so the course of the story is just, let me make sure everyone understands who I once was and let me make sure they see the process by which I became this new person or I started thinking in this new way. And once you start thinking about stories like that, it becomes very easy to figure out what belongs in your story and what you can take out of your story. Because anything that does not serve that purpose, anything that doesn't get you to the end, you can throw right out of the story. So you can throw out people and, and days and enormous events if they don't ultimately lead you to that one thing you're looking for. So as I said, I've read Storyworthy a couple of times now, and the biggest takeaway for me by far was definitely what you just said about transformation or realization. So tell me why that is so important in a story. Right. So essentially a transformation or a realization, that change over time is something that's going to connect to other people because we all have those moments. If I was to tell you the story of my vacation in Bermuda, and it was just a series of events you and I are never going to reach sort of any common common ground. Even if you had been to Bermuda, we're still not going to have any common ground over my trip. It's just going to be me reliving my yeah. vacation at your expense, right? <laughs> you're never going to suddenly feel like you're in my heart or in my mind. You're just going to be listening to me talk about things you you genuinely don't care about, but might be pretending to to demonstrate that you care because you're my friend. But that's the extent of it. But if I tell you about a time when I used to think one thing, but now I think another, or I used to be one kind of person, but now I'm another, the chances are much greater that you will have an experience similar to mine. It might even be the reverse of mine. You know, it might be, I used to think something you think, and now I think something you don't think. But even then, we're still going to have some common ground to reach. And I'm going to become memorable in your, in your mind and in your heart. Those are the kinds of stories that hang on people. That's why movies are the same way. Every movie Every good movie, every reasonable movie begins with a protagonist who needs to fundamentally change in some way in order to reach the end of the movie and achieve whatever goal they are attempting to achieve. And that's only because filmmakers and writers, we all understand that it's change, it's transformation and realization that people will connect with, as opposed to stuff that happened to us over the course of our day, which really might be amusing, might be entertaining, might even be suspenseful, but ultimately will not cause us to find common ground. So it really feels like because we use storytelling to connect, we're all just people trying to connect, right? And uh, if you can, like you say, connect with somebody about a change or knowing something a little bit more about somebody in their heart or their mind and not using an audience or whoever that audience is from stage in the corporate environment or at the pub, uh, not thinking of them as empty vessels, they're just ready for you to pour sort of your itinerary and your every thought into, isn't it? Right. I agree. You know, I often say that stories beget stories. Yeah. And I really believe that. I think that when I tell a story, it's much more likely that someone is now going to tell me a story. And I cannot tell you the number of secrets that I carry from people who hear me tell a story that expresses some vulnerability. And instantly, they tell me things that they've never told anyone in their entire lives. They spill that information onto me because suddenly I've made a connection with them. 
I've indicated that I am the type of person who has an open mind and an open heart. And for some reason, they feel like I am closer to them, even closer to them than some of the people they already know. You know, it's very rare that someone is vulnerable, even your friends. You know, a lot of our friends never really express vulnerability to us. Maybe our closest ones do, but we have a lot of people in our lives that we don't really know that well. You know, they Mm -hmm. don't sort of tell us their deepest, darkest secrets, but I do it on stages all the time. You know, I can't Mm -hmm. wait to tell you about the last terrible thing that I did because I know that first people will be entertained by it, but also when I'm done telling it, someone's going to come to me and they're going to tell me something. My favorite one was just about six months ago. Mm -hmm. A woman at the moth came up to me after I had told a deeply vulnerable story and she grabbed me. People always touch me after I tell stories. It's the most unbelievable thing. They put their hands all over me and they don't even realize it. But she grabs me and she says, every time I go into a house of a friend or a family member, I have to steal something no matter what. And even her mother, she tells me, and then she pulls me in really close and sort of whisper yells to me. She says, and you're the first person I've ever told that to. (laughs) Right? So she's made it into her like mid forties with this clear, clearly a mental illness of some kind, you know, and and a secret (laughs) never told anyone. And she ended up telling me like a complete stranger. And I know I didn't cure her of her mental illness that night, but I do know the value of being able to share a secret with one other person. I like to think I lightened her load a little bit. And it was just the fact that I told a story. So stories beget stories. She told me a story, mm-hmm. it was a short, not well-crafted story, but it had a punch, <laughs> right? It was a, it was a good one. It's one I'm never going to forget. So I think that's why we tell stories because it opens up other people to us as well. Mm. So we, we've heard on the, the podcast about the some of the worst stories are travel stories because you often just get the mm. itinerary regurgitation. We got on the plane and then we got to the place and then we went and saw this and then we went and did the other thing. So how do you determine which details to leave in or leave out of a story? How do you make those decisions? All of the decisions are based upon the idea that if you know the end of the story, everything else becomes very obvious to you. So if I was going to tell you a travel story, uh, this is a story I've never told anyone and I've never actually told Alicia this, but it's a true thing. When we went to Bermuda on our honeymoon, they don't allow cars on Bermuda. You have to ride mopeds or take public transportation. And I told you we would ride on a moped because I rode on a motorcycle when I was a kid and I thought it would be no big deal. But now I was 32 and I saw people driving on mopeds and I was immediately terrified. I thought there's no way I can do this. But on my, I'm on my honeymoon, I can't tell my wife that I can't ride a moped. So she looked at the moped and she said, oh, I'm not so sure about this. And I said to my wife, no problem, honey. I understand your fear. I, I we could do a double moped if you want. I'm happy to drive it because I knew she would say no. And she said, no, I wouldn't feel safe about that either. And I said, no problem. We'll just take cabs this whole time. I don't mind at all. I never told her that I was as frightened as she was, right? So like if that was going to be my, my travel story, which I would absolutely tell, it's a story of transformation and realization. It's a moment where I thought I was a cool guy who was going to ride a motorcycle and impress his wife. And in the end, I'm the kind of guy that can't even tell his wife that he's so afraid to ride a moped, he instead puts it on her and leaves it off himself, right? That's something I've never told her ever, but that's a true story, right? If that's the story, I know the end of my story is I am too afraid to tell my wife that I am afraid. And so anything in my entire honeymoon 
that does not serve that purpose goes away, right? So on my honeymoon, the last day, I got a root canal or I got, I needed a root canal. One of my teeth started to die. My last day of my honeymoon was extremely painful. I don't put that in the story. It's an interesting tale that I like to tell people, but it doesn't go in that story, right? I swam with the dolphins when I was in Bermuda. I'll never forget it. Doesn't go in the story. You know, I taught Alicia to play chess while we were in Bermuda. Wonderful moment for us. Doesn't go in the story. If it doesn't have to do with me being afraid to ride a moped and trying to impress my new wife, it doesn't belong in the story. So if you decide what the end of your story is, and then you, then it becomes simple because you just force yourself to only say things that serve the end of your story. Mm. I'll probably tell that moped story soon. That's a good one. <laughs> it, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I can, I can um, I can see the value in that. Yeah. Do you actually on that? Do you have any idea um, whether they won or not? Um, whether it was at the moth or speak up? How many stories you've told from stage now? Um, I can tell you how many stories I've told from at the moth because I have yeah. a database because I'm a crazy person because I'm a super competitive person, Kate, and super competitive people keep data on everything. <laughs> <laughs> so I have told um, eighty. Two and 26 so 98 stories at the moth i'm up to wow. between um slams and grand slams actually if you count some main stage shows i'm over 100 whoa moth and um yeah right and it speak up probably more than 100 too and then maybe another 100 in other venues so you know maybe <laughs> three or four hundred times i've been on a stage telling a story wow Wow, so storytelling is alive and well in your part of the world for sure. Yeah, well, I'm right in between Boston and New York as well. Yeah. So I'm two hours either way. So I can go to both yeah. of those locations. And I have a wonderful wife who understands. And and I, I don't need to sleep that much. So I can just go and tell stories. <laughs> She's in bed right now at 8 p.m. Right right now, a moth story slam is beginning somewhere in the world. <laughs> it's not like she would care if I'm there because she's already asleep. Right? So... So I have lots of opportunities. And I've also been telling stories since 2011, so eight years. Yeah. I could certainly see how that would be different when the population of Manhattan is the same as the population of Australia. Like, of course, there's just going to be right. so much more culture in every little aspect. Yes. But all, I mean, all, all of those stories, you talk a lot about, about small moments. And so I, I want to launch into that a little bit is storytelling is this increasingly sort of in vogue buzzword that we hear so often in business about tell your story and and often I hear or I see that that is interpreted as I'm going to tell my life story how I had an awful childhood and upbringing and teenage years or you get that full biography that honestly is just they all feel a bit the same regardless of what's happened um, and so they either drag on for far too long or you're trying to cram you know 20 30 40 years down into just a few minutes and it lacks all sorts of detail and either way it tends to miss and and you're talking about transformation which implies a you know a single instant or a tiny moment you know on a moped in in Bermuda like you say what's the value in telling stories about big moments uh, or small moments do you have a preference and is there value in each of those yeah so, so like I said when I started going to the moth I thought I was going to tell my big stories you know I've I've died twice and been brought back to life through CPR. I was arrested and tried for a crime I didn't commit. I was homeless, a whole bunch of stuff. And I thought I was going to be successful for those reasons. The difference or, or the thing that I discovered was that those big stories are hard to tell and they can never be about the big thing because no one understands the big thing. 
if I tell you about the time I died and came back to life, you will not suddenly feel connected to me because that is not common ground for us. Uh, as much as I may describe the car accident that caused me to die and then come back to life, you're never going to be thinking, that's right, Matt, that one's happened to me. I also went through a windshield, right? We're not going to connect. So if I'm telling a big story, I have to find something small about that story. Oftentimes, my big story is not about the big thing. In fact, oftentimes people forget about the big thing when I tell a big story and they focus on the small thing. The time when I was 17 and I went through a windshield and died on the side of the road, it ends up being a story about my friend showing up in the emergency room when my parents fail to show up and they become my family that day. And I get emails about that story all the time. I've never received an email that said, I love the story about the time you died and came back to life. Yeah. I always get emails that say, I love the story about your friends in the emergency room because everyone understands what it's like to have friends bail you out or for parents to let you down or for someone to unexpectedly be in the place that you need them to be at just the right moment. All of those things people understand. In fact, one of the things I love to point out when I tell that story in workshops is nobody cries when I die. They just kind of blink at me and continue to listen. But when my friends show up in the emergency room unexpectedly, everyone weeps. And I always tell them later, I say, I died and you didn't cry. And that's because when I died, they could not relate to my death or my resurrection, you know, in the back of an ambulance. Oh, is it also because, I mean, you died, but you're clearly standing in front of them. So clearly you didn't kind of die forever. <laughs> that's true. But I would also say sort of, even though my parents didn't show up in the emergency room when I was 17, that was 25 years ago. So even that, okay, his parents didn't show up, but it's 25 years later. Presumably they didn't continually not show up. Presumably they still existed and at some point did show up, right? So the thing that makes them cry, though, is the understanding of being alone and then not being alone, suddenly realizing that, that you are loved, Yeah, right. right? That is what makes people cry. It's the same thing with all the big stories I tell. My arrest story is really a story about my struggle for faith in God a God I don't believe in, but who I happen to call out for help on that particular day. And I oddly get the answer I need. So, you know, it's that little glimmer of possibly maybe there's a God that I don't believe in yet, but he believes in me, that kind of an idea. So the big stories are harder because I have to find some small moment within them in order to make them effective. You know, the story of my trial, I've never told. And people are always asking me, will you please tell the story about the trial? And I always say, eh, you know, the other day I fell down in CVS and a woman laughed at me. I'd rather tell that story, <laughs> you know, <'cause, laughs> because I know I can connect with you on that story very easily and I can tell it very easily and you'll understand it in a way that making you understand the trial is going to be so much harder. It's not that I can't do it, but I just, it's the difference between lifting up a big rock or a little rock. I'm going to get the same effect. You know, in fact, the little rock might get more of an effect. I might get more connection and more understanding out of the little rock than the big rock. So I like to pick up a lot of little rocks and I save the, the big rocks for when people demand it of me. Yeah, right. Yeah. So I would like to change text just a little bit here and ask how does storytelling fit into like a corporate presentation, whether that's internal corporate or outfacing to like stakeholders or clients? Sure. I mean, the outfacing is pretty simple, you know, quite often when I work with companies or hospitals or nonprofits, they're all sort of looking to either improve their reputation or gain the trust of the public or 
win a grant or find a customer. So when you can tell a story, that's going to be a real simple way to get people on board, whether you need them to support your cause or give you money or purchase your product. So, so that happens all the time. I mean, commercials do the same thing. You know, when I work with advertising agencies on commercials, I'm always, I'm always brought in to offer storytelling guidance to people who understand how to pack information in 30 seconds, but not necessarily tell a story. So that's a little easier. In terms of internally, the people I work with, there's a man I'm working with, for example, right now, he owns a large uh, manufacturing company here in Connecticut. And on Monday mornings, he has an all-staff meeting. And there's dangers of layoffs here in Connecticut because of the tariffs that are currently infecting our country. And, Mm -hmm. you know, there's concern amongst his employees and he wants to maintain morale and make people understand that he's on their side and he's going to make thoughtful decisions and, you know, he's going to keep their best interests in mind while he makes difficult decisions. And so I'm helping him tell stories at these all staff meetings and it's changed everything about his interaction with his employees. He can't get over how, how much better it is. So he told a story about a time when he was laid off, when he was like 24. And just telling the story of being laid off and having to go home and tell your wife with the new baby that you have just been laid off from your job, telling his employees that story changed everything for him because suddenly the employees understood that he understood. And he just, he couldn't believe the effect. He would go out onto the factory floor and people just came to him now. Instead of being afraid that the boss was walking the floor, they left the machinery and would come over and talk to him. And they shook his hand and they thanked him. So I think internally, when we can tell stories in sort of vulnerable, effective, and strategic ways, we can connect with employees, we can improve morale, we can assure the people that we work with that we are decent people, that we are keeping their interests in mind. All of those kinds of things can happen just by just by telling stories, you know. So he he's learning how to tell stories about things that are happening out in his life that apply to what's happening within the company. And it's really changed his the dynamic of the entire company and his interaction with his employees. Mm. And and we do a lot of that. I work with hospitals and nonprofits and startups and all those folks teaching them to do that kind of thing. And particularly the leaders of these businesses. If you're managing people and you're not telling stories, you're a fool. You're just you're making a terrible mistake. Yeah, right. I think um I think that makes a lot of sense. That's really great. What about if you're internal, if someone trying to speak to maybe a board or, you know, a level above, how would you use storytelling in that instance? I, you know, I do a couple of things. One is anytime that I'm asked a question, I tell a story. And in order to do that, you have to have a lot of stories to tell. So you have to sort of use all the strategies that I teach them in order to start collecting stories. And that includes stories about what's happening in the company, but also stories about lessons you learned as a paper boy that you can now apply to your job as a manager. Those are all really helpful. I also teach people in the corporate world, particularly sort of people in charge of other people, that you should be telling things about yourself that are very strategic. So for example, when I meet people in the real world, I tell them I'm an elementary school teacher as soon as possible, because that is greatly appealing to all human beings. It demonstrates a level of decency and kindness. You know, People just like me for it. I make sure they know that I'm a father and I have two children and that I have a wife, because that indicates that there's another human being who's willing to spend her life with me. That actually says something significant about me. 
And the fact that I have two children creates an instant bond with anyone in the room who has children. Now we have common ground. I mention I have two cats as quickly as I can because weirdly enough, pet owners are insane people who love their pets oftentimes more than their children. And cat people are a very special breed of those people. <laughs> they are. And if there's someone in the room who loves their cats, suddenly we have common ground. I'm a elementary school teacher, father, husband, cat owner. That blows people's minds, all of those things. And so I'm often picking out items from people's biographies and letting them know how important these things are to connect to other people. And I'm not suggesting you proclaim that you're a fantastic parent or a wonderful spouse or even a good pet owner. Just putting that information out there in a small story, whether it's 10 seconds or whether it's two minutes, putting those kinds of things out there allow me to establish connections with people that I wouldn't otherwise have. It's why I always lead with I'm a teacher, not I'm an author. Because an author does not connect with human beings, yeah. right? If I say I write columns and novels, nobody can connect with that. It might come up eventually, but I lead with the things that I know provide the greatest common ground. And so I'm often telling managers in the corporate world that you can't sort of just be a cardboard cutout to your employees. What they really want to know is who you are as a human being. We don't follow managers. We follow human beings. You know, we don't get inspired by titles. We get inspired by people. And the more I know about a person, the more likely I'm going to be inspired by them. So the stories will help people sort of jump on board, follow you, you know, charge on your behalf, you know, all of those things that we want people to do in our world. I like that. Yeah, yeah. You often hear the rhetoric, um, people don't follow managers, they follow leaders, but I actually like better people follow humans because yeah. that feels more true. Right. Yes, because I have had many terrible leaders in my life, but they are still leaders. In fact, they're, I would argue they're not quite human beings, the ones I don't, the ones that have not inspired yeah. me, right? They're terrible things that occupy space and use oxygen. But the ones who really inspire us are the people who we understand fundamentally as people, you know, the ones that are, open up their hearts and minds and share parts of them that cause us to think, oh, he's like me. Oh my gosh, she's like me. Yeah. Now I believe in them more. So I always look to do that. I'm always shocked at how often I meet a manager who's afraid to share something like they have a cat or that they have a son, you know, or mm. these things that they think like, who would care about it? Everyone cares about it. No one cares about your title. No one cares about where your office is. No one kind of cares about your work history. I don't care how you worked your way up the company. Tell me you have a nice spouse and that you bought her a present. Tell us about your son and the stupid thing he did last night. Those are the things. I tell everyone that Charlie swallowed a marble, right? Because that's hilarious and stupid and concerning <laughs> and all of those kinds of things. So that's the kind of thing that I would want to tell. It's certainly, um, it, I, I talk sometimes about collapsing the divide. So whenever you've got somebody speaking or, you know, you've got somebody on the other end of a podcast, the expert, and they're so far ahead of anybody who's listening, you know, you put somebody on stage um, giving a keynote presentation even, they're miles ahead of your audience. But as soon as you can collapse that divide and laugh at the dumb thing his son did or how he, you know, had that moment of realization, it collapses that divide. It makes them makes them one of us, makes people right. human. We're just people trying to connect. Yeah. Do you remember the interview where the kid walked in last year? Someone was giving an interview on either the BBC, I think, oh. and their kid walked into the office and they were like shooing their kid away. Yeah. Right. If I asked you, 
what interviews do you remember from last year? You won't remember any of them, but you'll remember that one because it was so deeply human. If you have a child, you understand like they don't let you pee. The moment you have to pee is the moment your child wants you. The moment you get on the phone is the moment your kid needs everything. So we remembered that because I was like, oh, I get that. I understand. I have also shooed my son away. I'm like, I'm pooping. Please leave me alone, right? (laughs) (laughs) Yep. Yep, yep. So that's why we remember that, right? You're right. That is the most memorable interview. Yeah. And and people will say it's memorable because it was funny. But that's not true because there's lots of funny things that happen in interviews all the time. Hats fly off, weathermen and, you know, all these crazy things. You just have to Google or go on YouTube and do like crazy news moments. Mm. Nobody remembers it. They remember the kid. Because everyone who has a kid understands what that's about. You just go, oh, that could so be me. Like, I can just see that happening to me. Right. Yep. Yes. Now you know him, right? You feel him for him. Yeah. It's odd that people who didn't have kids would say things like, look at him shooing his kid away like that. How mean. I would never but parents do that. parents go, right. Parents go, <laughs> what are you talking about? I do that all the time. Yeah. <laughs> I would have been using my foot. I would have been kicking the child away. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, I have no idea what you're talking about. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Um, Matt, I have to interrupt here for a minute. It is driving me nuts. What are we competing on? I'm like, we're both in front of a bookshelf. I'm like, counting our books. (laughs) What are we competing on? Oh, from original, from earlier on? Yeah. Oh, um, well, I was, if I'm really, honestly, I was competing with you on posture. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's what I, you know, it's so sad when I do workshops, one of the things, sometimes my competitions are only with myself. I play this game and if you're competitive, you can play this game from now on. If there's 25 people in my workshop, I ask them what their name is and what brings them here. And before they say their name, I guess their name in my head. (laughs) Four times in my life, I have guessed the correct name and (laughs) I've never told them, but fireworks fire off when I do that. Yep. So for a competitive person, Kate, that is something you can do now. Right before I meet anyone and they hold out their hand and they say, hi, I'm, I guess their name. Yes. And only four times in my life have I been right, but I can tell you all four times and it's amazing. Do either of you also do the thing where you're sitting at a red traffic light and you just go three, two, one? All the time. And sometimes it goes green. Yeah. Oh yeah. I was thinking, you mean when I race the person next to me at the traffic light? Even though they don't know they're in a race, like I have to get through the intersection <laughs> before them. Yeah, that. I do that too. All right. So let's say you have a presentation. I'm so- sorry to like wind this back on the topic and all. Um, <laughs> all good. Uh, if you, you, you have a presentation coming up and you want to include a story, you understand that storytelling is important, but you find yourself kind of just staring at a blank screen. How, how do you go about thinking of or finding one of those personal stories we talked about to inject into a presentation? I always ask myself first, what's the point of the presentation? Sort of what is the content I'm going to deliver? I want to find a story that matches the content. And so I tried to define the content in its simplest form. So let me, let me give you an example. I had to give the closing keynote at a human trafficking conference once. Right. And... It was a three-day conference that they learned about human trafficking, and I had to give that closing remark. Whoa. Yep. The organizer asked me, are you going to research human trafficking so that you can talk about it? And I said, no. 
I said, the last thing they want to hear is more information on human trafficking. I said, what I'd like to do is talk about how important it is when issues like human trafficking come up that we act quickly, that we don't allow people to stall. Because so often in life, people say, it takes a long time to steer a big ship in a new direction. Mm -hmm. You know, we have to, we have processes and people and stakeholders, but this is a human life at stake. We can't afford to waste a second. Yeah. So thinking that's going to be my message, I just then ask myself, I have to tell a personal story about a time when either I waited too long and didn't act on something I should have, or a moment when I actually did the right thing and I acted quickly. Ideally, I would like to tell the first version, which is what I did that day. I told a story about how I didn't help a student quick enough and how it, it, was, it was unfortunate for both me and the student. I failed a student. And then I said in the talk, you can't do what I did because human life is at stake. And then I, I talked about it. So I just try to ask myself, what's the message of the talk? And then I can find a story that matches it. I don't have to match content in any way whatsoever, just emotion, just sort of the, the theme, the idea. And once I can do that, I have a million stories to choose from. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yes. So in that instance, the message is not human trafficking is bad because no kidding. It is, yeah, we can't stall. I, I really like that, looking for that core message. It allows me as a speaker to talk about anything I want. Yep. Anytime someone calls and says, can you talk about, it doesn't matter what the next thing is because the answer is always yes. Because I have 100 stories ready to go. And no matter what you want me to talk about, I promise you, I can find a core message that I can deliver and I can use a story to back it up. So topics don't mean anything to me anymore. I can talk on any topic because I'm not trying to match content to content. I'm just trying to match sort of message to message. In fact, I would say that if my story's content is completely unlike the rest of the talk, that's tremendous because that that brings new life to something that would ordinarily feel stale and expected. So so I love it when what I'm the story I open with has nothing to do with what I'm going to ultimately talk about. That certainly feels hugely powerful, and especially uh, when you consider that a story is almost just a vessel or a vehicle for a message. Like the story itself is not always the message, but pulling whatever that theme or that that learning is out of the, out of the back end of the story. Really, you could also do it the other way, which I do for people all the time in workshops. So a business person comes into the workshop. And we craft up a personal story. And then the business person says, so how could I use that in my business? How can this story apply to my corporate world? And I say to them, what is the core fundamental message that you're sending in your story? I can usually find a core fundamental message in their corporate world in the same way. So if it was, if it was the story about me getting arrested, and at the end of that story, I am searching for faith that I don't quite have. I would say, well, aren't there moments in the corporate world where people sort of don't believe in something? You want to propose a, a new initiative and you know there's going to be skepticism in the beginning, but sometimes we just have to have that blind faith. We have to, we're, we're in the dark, but we can, we, we can have the faith that maybe this is going to work out. We can, you know, we can search for the faith and believe in it. And the, the corporate people always go like, oh my God, how did you do that? And all I, I say, just ask yourself what your story is actually about in its simplest terms, and then look into your company and find a moment where you have a similar problem 
in its simplest terms and match the two together. I'm always doing that for people. They don't see it right away. It takes some practice, but you can do it that way too. Just a bit asking yourself the right questions, isn't it? Yeah. What it really is, is being able to boil your story down to its absolute essence. Mm. You know, this is a story about loneliness, or this is a story about overcoming an obstacle. You know, once you can say it in its simplest form, then you'll be able to see things in your business that will that the story will apply to. Yeah, right. That makes a lot of sense. I like that. I like that. And then you just get better and better at it. Once you've done it once, it becomes easier the next time. Yeah, I've actually been asked to do a workshop specifically where business people bring personal stories to the workshop. They tell me the story and I tell them how to use it in their business. That sounds really boring to me. So I haven't done that workshop yet, but there's a lot of people who want me to do it because I think it'd be very useful to them. Yeah, right. All right, Matt. So a question we ask everybody is, is there a particular book or resource that's had an impact on the way that you speak, you train others, or you tell stories? Oh, I guess I would say, I'd say that Chip and Dan Heath's book, Made to Stick, is a book that has really changed the way that I teach people and changed the way that I speak. It is a book I listen to or read every year. I think it's the best book on teaching in the world. I think every teacher of any topic should absolutely read this book. It's six core principles that can be used to teach anyone just about anything. It's the understanding that the education is best served in certain ways. And it's just brilliant. It's a perfect book and every teacher should read it. So made to stick. I mean, there's others, but that's the one I turn to right away. I love that a teaching resource. Yeah, it's not made to be teaching. It's not made, it's, it's a book that's designed to teach you how to make ideas stick with other people. But I mean, that's essentially what teaching is, is we're trying to get people to learn things and internalize them. And it's just, it's brilliant. Yeah. And it's, it's an easy read. The audio book is great as well. So I highly recommend it. Cool. And then last, but certainly not least, where can people find you? Oh, right. So they can find me at uh, matthewdix.com. You can sort of find all my stuff there. Uh, you can find our, our podcast, Speak Up Storytelling, wherever you get podcasts, Apple Podcasts or Spotify or wherever. Uh, but if you just go to matthewdix.com, you can probably find everything there. I'm on Twitter at Matthew Dix and Instagram at Matthew Dix, all of those places as well. Excellent. Awesome. That's excellent. Thank you so very much, Matt. Um, congratulations, of course, on the new book that was launched last week. And um, like we said, we've been longtime listeners and followers of your work. So it's genuinely an honor and a privilege to have you on the podcast. So thanks for joining us. Thank, Thank you, you for so having much. me. I'm, I'm honored to be here. I really appreciate it. Thanks for listening to today's show. We'd love for you to leave us a review on iTunes. If you'd like to know more, check out presentationboss.com.au slash podcast, where you'll find show notes for today with links to everything we've discussed. If you have a recommendation for someone you'd love to hear from in this show or think you have something of value you'd like to share, send us an email at podcast at presentationboss.com.au. We're always happy to hear your thoughts and take suggestions for future episodes. Most importantly, we rely on you to share the information in this podcast. If you found value in today's episode, please recommend us to a friend. Have a great week. All right. So when we were chatting to you, Matt, about setting this podcast recording, I may have slipped the word fortnight into an email. And <laughs> I'm, pretty sure you, 
I'm pretty sure you had to Google what it is. And then, and then you mentioned it and I Googled why you would have to Google it. And it turns out it's an Australian slash UK term for two weeks. It's short right. for 14 nights, right? Yes. So we I, thought we'd, uh, yeah. oh, I, I knew what it was, but only because I study Shakespeare constantly with my students. Right. Ah. So, but otherwise, no one else would know it. Yeah. Okay. So we thought we'd just lead into the uh, steer into the skid and ask you about some other classic Australian words that literally Kate and I use, uh, and, and wonder, you know, what you feel they could mean. Okay. Yeah, that sounds great. Okay. So the first word is savo. So S apostrophe A R V O savo. To use it in a sentence, it would be, "Do you want to do something savo?" I have no idea. <laughs> <laughs> I mean. So, I would guess something like, do you agree? Oh, okay. No? No, it's, that's interesting. Um, so it's really, so Arvo is short for afternoon, and the S is just the back of this. So it's this afternoon or Savo. <laughs> Never heard that in my life. Yeah, right. There you go. You can use that with your friends and family now and think you're really okay. cool. That's great. <laughs> the second one, this is, this is a phrase that is used pretty much every weekend here in Australia. Um, what do you think it means to go to Bunnings for a snag? Bunnings for a snag? Yeah. I mean, my first thought is it's got to have to do with sex, but I guess not. <laughs> uh, so Bunnings for a snag, I guess we'd say a, a coffee shop for a scone or something like that. That's not bad. So... So Bunnings is our Australian hardware store, so probably like Home Depot for you. <laughs> uh-huh. um, and at the front of them, they always have a charity barbecue. So a sausage is a snag, you know, sausage in bread. We call that a snag. So you would literally go to Home Depot for a sausage or go to Bunnings for a snag. So your hardware stores have cookouts in front of them? Yeah. A cookout, yeah, yeah, a barbecue. That's not something that happens here in America either. It's great. You can go buy all of your hardware stuff and on the way out, you get a snag and lunch is sorted. Yeah, it's like $2 for a snag and a piece of bread. It's great. All right. <laughs> all right, last, yeah. one, last one. And we, th- we think you've got a good chance because you're pretty close to it. What do you think it means to go for a Macca's run? A Macca's run? Macca's run. Yep. Is that two words or one word? Two it's words. It's two words. So Macca's is M-A-C-C-A-S and then run. Well, it's got to be you're going out to get something because, you know, if we're yes. going out for a, for a beer run, that means we're going out for beer. Yep. So whatever a Macca's is. You yeah. go for a Macca's run every morning, we believe. Oh, I do. So Macca's is McDonald's. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Yes, I had an Egg McMuffin this morning. There you yeah. go. That's a Macca's run. Oh, <laughs> a Macca's run. All right. I can use that one all the time. I can say yeah. that every morning to my kids. I'm going out for a Macca's run. Yeah. <laughs> and if you, if you literally Google like Australian McDonald's or Australian Maccas, you will see some of our signs instead of under the gold notches have McDonald's say Maccas because <laughs> it became so much a part of the, the discourse here. That Vernacular, yeah. That. yeah. That's great. When I was publishing my book, my books publish in England and those are the books that you end up getting is the, the English versions of them. Mm-hmm. I always have to get on the phone and sort of <laughs> go over words because my British editor doesn't know what some of my words are ah. and they have to explain to me that like over here, we don't call those shutters. We call them something else. So whenever they make a change, they have to run the change by me as well. So yeah. I run into some of these words, but I don't, I, I suspect that you, your words are very different than the British words too. Yeah. Yeah. They can yeah. be. Can you're be. stuck with the British version of the book. So That's you have it. To that. 
Yeah. 